Thank you, Anna. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, I'm very, very pleased to be here. Thanks for coming. So <clears throat> I'm going to be talking about a central issue in, in the personal identity debate. Um, and actually, a great deal of work in the personal identity debate, it seems to me, is driven or shaped by the assumption that two individually attractive theses are, in fact, incompatible. So <clears throat> these are on the handout, A and B. A, we are fundamentally biological organisms of a certain kind. B, we would go with the cerebrum. I'll explain a bit more precisely what, what that comes to. But I think immediately each of these theses is attractive. So thesis A seems to be, I take it on the face of it, little more than a kind of commonplace of our post-Darwinian worldview. Thesis B receives, I think, very strong intuitive support from reflection on counterfactual cases of a sort quite familiar to analytic philosophy since the mid-20th century. Like cases that make it compelling to judge that psych the psychological continuity secured by the isolation or transplantation of the cerebrum would be sufficient for our persistence. But it's usual to find those who adhere to the so-called animalist thesis, A, trying to explain away or discredit the highly intuitive thesis, B. Conversely, those who take B as bedrock in their theorizing usually regarded as a primary motivation for rejecting A and for developing anti-animalist, principally Lockean, views of our fundamental nature. And you know, for all this inventive <coughs> hard work, I think, and what I want to argue here is that these endeavors rest on a mistake. What I want to argue is that on the basis of a plausible general framework for theorizing about the nature and persistence of macroscopic continuance, it can be shown that far from being incompatible, thesis A in fact strongly supports thesis B. A, a settled and coherent view of our nature and persistence can incorporate both theses. So once the general framework is set out, the positive argument for the compatibility claim will be fairly straightforward. I mean, its key point is that the cerebrum preserves a high density of capacities for activity characteristic of the relevant kind of organism. Actually, a greater part of this paper will be given over to defensive and diagnostic tasks to rebut objections and to try to make some sense of the prevalence of the, I think, mistaken assumption that the theses are incompatible. So just, I think, before pressing on with these tasks, it might be helpful first to give a bit, a bit of context. I mean, my aim here isn't to defend A or B individually, but I think a brief reminder of the costs of giving up either thesis should serve to highlight the importance of a demonstration of their compatibility. So I think the thesis, A, that we're fundamentally biological organisms of a certain kind, but specifically human primates, has been presupposed by the various sciences of human nature, biology, anthropology, sociology, psychology, for well over a century, and can reasonably be said to form part of our scientifically informed common sense. Of course, philosophers should be prepared to question common sense. There are also more theoretical obstacles to giving up thesis A. So, as Eric Olson and others have forcefully directed the so-called problem of the thinking animal against those who claim to distinguish us from the human animal. And the problem being that human animals seem to meet the conditions for thinking, right? They have a functioning nervous system and all the rest. But if they do, then how, how could one possibly distinguish oneself from the human animal thinking at, at one's location? And that's a slightly sort of techie <coughs> challenge, a more basic theoretical challenge for anyone who rejects A, is to give an alternative account of our fundamental nature that can be taken seriously. I mean, just for an indication of the difficulty of, of this challenge, it's enough simply to state 
some of the most recent alternative accounts from major figures who've been compelled to reject A on the basis of adherence to B. So Parfit, although he, he went through a phase of flirting with the animalist thesis A, now claims that we are fundamentally thinking parts, right? Entities a few inches high that ride around inside the skulls of, of human animals. Uh, Mark Johnston, for similar reasons, has rejected A, and he insists that we are, in principle, only temporarily animals and fundamentally protean persons, as he puts it, kind of universal-like entities which can become multiply located throughout space and time in virtue of the projection of our future-directed concern. So I think if rejecting A leads you to these kind of kind of views then <clears throat> in the light of the widespread assumption that one's forced to choose between A and B it's unsurprising that others have instead attempted to come to terms with rejecting B despite its intuitive plausibility but that I think is very hard to swallow um, I think it might be good first to note that the thesis that we go along with the cerebrum is a kind of generic claim covering importantly different cases, notably what I'm going to call a remnant case in which a human animal is pared down until only a supported cerebrum in a vat remains, that kind of case. And on the other hand, a more complex, what I'll call separation and attachment case, in which a cerebrum is carefully separated from the head of an otherwise unscathed human animal and attached into the head of a living human animal missing a cerebrum. Okay, that's Brown, the Brown Brownson case that Shoemaker made famous, basically. <clears throat> so I'm going to understand thesis B as conjoining theses B1 and B2 on the handout. So B1, we go along with the cerebrum in a remnant case. B2, we go with the cerebrum in a separation and attachment case. And I think both of those theses on the face of it are compelling, we're strongly inclined to judge that the continuous preservation of our diverse and highly specific psychological capacities would be sufficient for us to persist, cut down to a cerebrum in a vat, and also for us to move to the location of the person resulting from the attachment of the cerebrum <coughs> to the recipient organism. On the face of it, those inclinations to Judgment about counterfactual cases are as strong and stable as others typically granted foundational status in philosophical theorizing. You know, the, like the inclination to judge that the subject of a Gettier case doesn't have knowledge. The inclination to judge that it's not okay to kill and harvest the organs of a healthy, <coughs> innocent person in order to save five lives. I think fewer, certainly no one's going to feel comfortable accepting a theory of our nature that forces us to reject either B1 or B2. Um, I mean, there are some of the kind of more theoretical obstacles to rejecting um, B1 that I I could go into. I mean, it, <coughs> think about this. So consider the cerebrum isolated <coughs> in the vat. I mean, suppose contrary to B1 that we don't persist. Well, question, where did this conscious subject of experience come from? Well, <clears throat> one thing you might say, well, it's, it's, it's a new conscious subject of experience that's been created by the, the whittling down procedure, but I mean, that's a strange claim if you think about it, the claim that a conscious subject of experience could be brought into existence by pairing away tissue that's not part of the <clears throat> um, realizing basis of psychological life. It's a strange idea. Well, suppose instead that that subject that's now conscious was present all along. Well, then how could <clears throat> one claim to know that one's the thing that doesn't persist rather than the thing that, that does persist? Right. 
Um, I mean, there's also the general difficulty of giving a convincing debunking or explaining away of <clears throat> uh, strong inclinations to, to judge B1 and B2. I mean, Olsen and Ayers and others have, have tried, and I'm happy to talk about this in discussion, have tried to give some kind of alternatives and explanations of why we mistakenly think that we we go along with the cerebrum, but they're not, it seems to me, very plausible. I, I can talk about that in <coughs> this discussion, if you like. Okay, so just in a, in a bit more detail what I'm going to do, I'm going to sketch what I think is a, f a kind of familiar, broadly Aristotelian, I suppose, framework for theorizing about the nature and persistence of kinds of macroscopic continuance, and then I'm going to instance that framework with the kind relevant to thesis A, which I'm going to suggest is the kind human animal. <clears throat> and I'm going to apply that then to the remnant case in order to show first that <clears throat> thesis A in fact strongly supports thesis B1, right? the thesis that we're fundamentally biological organisms of a certain kind understood properly, in fact supports the intuitive thesis B1. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll then turn to objections to the proposal. I think the first to be dispatched are fairly kind of superficial complaints that the remnant case isn't it like any other case of mere organ preservation. Hasn't the organism lost too much of its size and shape? Does this proposal drain animalism of its kind of distinctive content just collapsing into a Lockean psychological continuity view. And actually the, the reply to that latter objection is going to be that the proposal doesn't have the consequence that psychological continuity is necessary for the persistence of a human organism, even if it can be sufficient. Right? The proposal permits that a human organism could, as seems plausible, persist, <coughs> reduced to the condition of a non-cognitive human vegetable, basically. Um, I think more, more time certainly should be spent on two more theoretically substantial lines of objection. So the first is, well, it really relates to the kind of olsen van Inwagen development of animalism. So they connect the persistence of organisms to life understood in a particular way. And it's a consequence of my proposal that that they're, they're wrong about that, and it's actually it's a mistake to suppose that life, in their sense of a kind of self-maintenance activity, <coughs> or kind of collective activity of the small parts that um, compose an animal is necessary for the persistence of an animal. But I think I'm probably going to leave that for discussion. It's an interesting question why Van and Wagen and Olsen end up in that in that place. The other more serious, I think, line of objection that's not just of scholarly interest for the study of animalism is <coughs> uh, that the proposal can't plausibly describe the more complex separation and attachment case, right, in which a smaller object is moved between two larger human animals. Okay, so that's that's particularly pressing given that human organisms can, as I'm claiming, persist in a non-cognitive vegetative state. If the proposal is that the human organism moves with the cerebrum in that separation and attachment case, then what do we say about the vegetative human organism left behind? And what about the vegetative human organism that receives the cerebrum? So that kind of case can look very hard for an animalist who claims we we go with the cerebrum. And in response to that, those kind of worries, I'm going to argue the right model for these cases is furnished by actual cases of cutting and grafting of organisms. Um, a perspective I think that's probably been obscured by the fact that in what I'm going to call focally realized organisms, such as higher mammals, preponderance of material bulk is an unreliable guide to dominance in asymmetric fission and fusion. And that's going to be the message. So the ultimate conclusion is going to be that the animalist thesis A 
strongly supports the intuitive Brown Brownson verdict B2 as well as the remnant verdict B1. Okay, so that's that's what I'm I'm going to do. So <clears throat> so first the nature and persistence of macroscopic continuance. Right, so our initial fix on macroscopic continuance, such as boulders, cats, trees, is their immediate engagement of our perceptual systems. Further experience reveals that the activities of these entities figure in a range of law-like generalizations which enable us to systemize and explain external phenomena. On this view, a macroscopic continuant is most fundamentally a locus of law-like activity characteristic of its general kind. So this is a sort of inspired in a vague but quite deep way by people like David Wiggins. It's that, it's that kind of approach. <clears throat> so what about the persistence through time of a macroscopic continuant? Well, in the light of the general conception of its nature as a locus of activity characteristic of its kind, the natural way to conceive of the persistence of a continuant to fundamental kind K is in terms of the preservation along a path of a sufficiency of capacities for activity characteristic of Ks. So here's the schematic principle that I'm going to assume henceforth. So I've called this persistence on the handout. A continuant of fundamental kind K persists if and only if a sufficient number of capacities for K characteristic activity are continuously preserved along a dominant path. So I think some clarifications and examples will bring this to life a bit. <clears throat> so first, why, why capacities for activity? <clears throat> we'll take an object, about an artifact of the toaster kind. Here's an example. So we take it that a toaster can persist unplugged from the power socket. But we do not take it that a toaster can persist mutilated merely down to a power cord. <clears throat> well, one factor in our judgments is this. Although the unplugged toaster does not currently toast bread, it retains the capacity for this activity, characteristic of its kind. Its improbable intrinsic structure and organization is such that it would take only a fairly simple external intervention, plugging in, <clears throat> for that characteristic activity to occur. In contrast, the simpler intrinsic structure of an isolated power cord is such that the external intervention on the subject, on the object required for bread toasting to occur, would be so complex, in effect, amounting to the construction of most of a toaster, that the external intervention cannot reasonably be said to be a mere trigger for the manifestation of a capacity for bread toasting that was abiding in the power cord all along. At best, the power cord has the capacity to contribute some partial sub-activity transmitting current to the bread toasting activity of a larger system. Okay, why the emphasis on activity? Doesn't that notion fail to apply to inert continuance such as boulders or <clears throat> things like that? Well, no. Despite its kind of busy connotations, the notion absorbs the relevance of brute continuities of matter and shape. There's no reason to exclude such activities as filling spatial receptacles of certain shapes, resisting penetration, squashing things, rolling down slopes, all those kinds of capacities. Um, <clears throat> and note that the activities characteristic of a macroscopic kind <clears throat> are macroscopic activities of a whole individual K rather than its small parts. This is not to deny that there may be interesting collective conditions that must be met by the microscopic parts of a K in order for these macroscopic activities to occur. I think we're justified in recognizing the existence of macroscopic entities over and above pluralities of microscopic con constituents by the existence of law-like generalizations concerning the activities of Ks themselves. Um, I mean, to say that K characteristic activities are activities of individual Ks rather than activities of their microscopic parts is not to say that these macroscopic activities need be somehow superficial or manifest in the sense of being easily perceivable. 
I mean, digesting and visualizing are activities of whole human animals, but they're not easily perceivable. Nor need whole K activities be manifest in the sense of being a priori deducible from um, naive conception of K's. Right? One may have to learn from experience that, for example, toasters have the capacity to give electric shocks. I learned that from experience. <clears throat> so why, why does persistence mention a sufficient number of capacities for activity? Well, typically for a given kind, there's a wide range of activities characteristic of that kind. So I think the default presumption about any single one of those capacities should be that its, it's preservation is not individually, metaphysically necessary for the persistence of the entity. There need be no kind of soul-like master capacity that's <coughs> necessary for persistence. So you think yeah, an entity can persist without that capacity if a sufficient subset of its other kind characteristic activities is preserved. Right? For example, the, the capacity for purring is characteristic of the cat kind. But an injured cat can persist through the loss of that capacity so long as it retains sufficient other capacities characteristic of its kind. Breathing, hunting, excreting, all the rest. Um, I mean, this notion of sufficiency is vague, and you shouldn't always expect to be able to deduce whether a K has persisted from independently specifiable facts about the number of characteristic capacities preserved. And I think a more realistic epistemology here will recognize reciprocal evidential support between judgments of sufficiency of preservation of capacities and judgments of numerical identity over time persistence. Um, the dominant path clause is there to handle fission cases in a familiar kind of way. Um, although I'm not assuming that a single dominant path of preservation of kind characteristic capacities has to exclude spatiotemporal forking or more scattering of matter, and that would depend upon the kinds and capacities in question. For example, a watch can persist disassembled into components for cleaning. Why? Well, given the improbably neat matching of the fairly large components and their proximity on the technician's table, it would take only a relatively simple <coughs> intervention to trigger characteristic timekeeping activity. <coughs> This supports the supposition that kind characteristic capacities are preserved. In contrast, if the watch was smashed into a billion particles, then all such intrinsic organization would be lost. And the complex external intervention on the plurality required to bring about timekeeping activity couldn't exploit any abiding structure. So it's plausible the kind characteristic capacity would not have been continuously preserved. It's correspondingly plausible, but a watch doesn't persist smashed into a billion particles. <clears throat> um, just a final clarification. So the capacities for activity of some kinds of continuance are realized in a more distributed <clears throat> and less focal pattern than the capacities of other kinds of continuance. For example, the characteristic capacities of a homogeneous material concretion, such as a rocky boulder, to squash relatively soft things, block certain gaps, and so on, <clears throat> are not obviously realized in some parts more than any others. In contrast, the capacities of, say, a computer with a small but sophisticated microprocessor and bulky metal case are realized more focally. So such a computer could be refitted with a new case, despite the temporary but dramatic change of form and appearance that would entail, or why, or due to its focal realization, the temporary loss of some of its space filling and sort of paperweight capacities is consistent with the continuous preservation of a larger number of other capacities for kind characteristic activity. Okay, so that's, that's just a sort of back of an envelope sketch of a complete framework for reasoning about the nature and persistence of macroscopic continuance. So now in order to explain why thesis A strongly supports thesis B1 first, this framework needs to be applied to thesis 
A, the thesis that we are fundamentally biological organisms of a certain kind. Well, what is the relevant kind of biological organism? I take it the relevant kind is not box jellyfish or shiitake mushroom or hedge sparrow. The relevant kind is human animal, something like Homo sapiens sapiens. So specified in this way, <clears throat> A combines with the persistence schema to yield the following principle about our persistence, which I've called A persistence on the handout. One of us persists if and only if a sufficient number of capacities for human-animal characteristic activity are continuously preserved along a dominant path. <clears throat> so in order to appreciate the consequences of this principle, more needs to be said about the activities characteristic of human animals. Well, the variety is enormous, but we can at least begin a list. So I put on the handout as well. Breathing, sleeping, snoring, pointing, listening, walking, running, jumping, tool using, gossiping, planning, remembering, fantasizing, excreting, eating, mating, drooling, seeking shelter, filling humanoid spatial receptacles, growing, aging, fighting infection, ailing, dying, mourning, hunting, relaxing, visually attending, problem solving, blocking light, resisting penetration, sweating, painting, singing, storytelling, fidgeting, digesting. You could go on, I'm sure. <clears throat> but first, observe that the activities characteristic of human animals include, but are not restricted to, activities characteristic of simple material concretions. For example, resisting pen penetration by other material bodies. They also include, but are not restricted to, activities characteristic of most kinds of terrestrial organisms, so growing, excreting. What's distinctive of human organisms in particular is the spectacular intensification of the, <coughs> the animate capacities for sensitivity and motility, which characterize pretty much without exception every zoological organism. I mean, marine sponges are a difficult <coughs> case, but so human animals are just, as far as we know, peerless in their sensitivity to very abstract patterns in the world and in their capacity for complex and extended <coughs> courses of action, right? Capacities impressively combined in communication or <coughs> problem solving. But these are just the development in, a certain, in certain respects of the sensitivity and motility characteristic of every animal kind. The more or less sophisticated coordination between sensors and effectors is, in Peter Godfrey Smith's nice phrase, part of the design skeleton of any organism has to adjust its activities to what's going on around it. An animal is an organism, of course, with a pressing need to adjust its activities to what's going on around it. Unlike a plant, it must seek out organic matter in order to regulate its nutrient and energy levels. So animals' sensory motor means the maintenance of their nutrition and metabolism is a, the sort of, it's a particular exemplification of the generally self-regulating homeostatic nature of all living organisms. So I think this is important developing thesis A in this way we see that a theoretical role for psychology in our persistence need not derive from a metaphysical fetishization of the, the personal capacities for moral responsibility, self-reflection and so on which distinguish us from other animals. If A is true then psychological capacities are relevant to our persistence for the reason they're relevant to the persistence of zoological organisms of any kind, right? they're among the capacities characteristic of the organism kind to which we belong. So I think perhaps it's a result of the long shadow cast by the 20th century opposition of bodily and psychological criteria of personal identity, but there's a tendency in the contemporary debate to suppose that the distinction between biological and psychological 
<coughs> capacities is an exclusive one, but seems to be the sensory motor capacities, characteristic of animals, and no less biological than any other specific mode of organismic self-regulation, such as the capacities for transpiration and photosynthesis, characteristic of botanical life forms. Right. None of these specific capacities is characteristic of every kind of organism on Earth. Right. But why, why should that matter? Okay, so now let's turn to the remnant case, right? the brain in the bat, whittling down kind of case. <clears throat> okay, so thesis A combined with that general persistence schema yielded the, what I call A persistence. So the intuitive thesis B1 that we go along with the cerebrum in the remnant case will follow in turn if A persistence is combined with the following additional thesis that I've called sufficiency on the handout. <clears throat> the remnant cerebrum case continuously preserves a sufficient number of capacities for human-animal characteristic activity along a dominant path. Well, is sufficient sufficiency plausible? In the cases it's envisaged by well, in philosophical discussion, a human organism is cut down, the cerebrum is provided with some form of life support system, so there's a subject continuing to exercise various capacities such as, we can imagine, action planning, visualizing, and preserving many more psychological capacities that are blocked from manifestation by the lack of other body parts. If this picture of the case is accurate to the empirical facts about the anatomical structure in question, then it seems to me sufficiency is indeed extremely plausible. In this situation, a very large number of characteristic capacities of the human organism kind would be continuously preserved along a dominant path. But why would this be a sufficient number? It might be objected there's no reason to suppose that the preservation of the capacity for thinking would be sufficient to compensate for the loss of human organism <coughs> capacities controlled, as it were, lower in the central nervous system, like breathing or excretion. Well, it seems to me the objector's single term thinking here grossly underestimates the number and diversity of human organism characteristic capacities preserved. Color discrimination, grammatical string detection, social hierarchy navigation, duration sense, different temporal scales, vertical horizontal line discrimination, face recognition, place recognition, practical know-how, auditory phoneme individuation, predictive naive physics, storytelling, episodic memory. Right. A single term like breathing covers no parallel multitude of distinguishable capacities characteristic of human organisms. Um, <clears throat> I can say I'll say some more about what's the grounds here for sufficiency, maybe in, in discussion, because I suspect it'll come up. You might also object that the specific appeal in sufficiency to the anatomical cerebrum in particular is rather empirically speculative. I mean, given the state of our current knowledge of the realization of mental capacities, you know, really is the cerebrum precisely what matters that? upper part of the brain. I think there's something to that worry. I mean, in fact, it's not a kind of deep, deep worry. I mean, the, as it figures in philosophical discussion, the cerebrum in a that case is kind of in, intended to lie at a certain conceptual point on a spectrum of possible kind of cases. On the one hand, you, know, you can imagine a animal that gets its legs cut off and is saved from hemorrhage by, you know, medics. There's a sort of clear case of <coughs> organism persistence. At the other extreme, maybe we preserve a little patch of visual cortex, of living tissue. There, an animal hasn't persisted. Well, why? Well, to kind of get that thing to do a lot of the kind of things that human animals do, you'd have to not merely give it a bit of life support, but pretty much reconstruct 
the cosmically complex rest of the cerebrum around it. So I think in that case, it's not plausible to say that we've got a large number of human organism characteristic capacities preserved. I think people are conceiving of the cerebrum as the kind of minimal realizer of lots and lots of mental <coughs> capacities, characteristic of human organisms. If it turns out empirically that it's not exactly the cerebrum that does that, then this B1 is no longer going to be the intuitive thesis. B now the intuitive thesis will be that we could survive pared down to whatever that whatever plays that role of being the minimal realizer. So actually it seems to be sufficiency insofar as it's theoretically plausible and B1 insofar as it's intuitive are always going to kind of march in step. So I'm sort of not worrying too much about the empirical details of the cerebrum here. I'll just for simplicity make the assumption it's the cerebrum that minimally preserves a high density of human organism characteristic capacities. I think on that assumption the case is strong that the naturalistically attractive animalist thesis A does support <clears throat> on the kind of framework I'm suggesting the highly intuitive thesis B1 right? since the cerebrum continuously preserves a high number of capacities for activity characteristic of human organism kind. Okay, so I think it will strengthen the case to consider some of the kind of ob objections that I think have stood in the way of this very, seems to be nice way of looking at things. So you find in animalists like Eric Olson and Paul Snowder um, and uh, David Mackey, the objection that the remnant cerebrum case is really no different from other cases of mere organ preservation. Right, we can imagine a kidney composed of living tissue preserved after the destruction of the rest of a human organism. Well, that entity is about the same size as a cerebrum in a vat, you can imagine. So how can the proposed line developing avoid the kind of absurd consequence that a human organism could well, become a kidney, basically? Well, I mean, first a clarification, the proposal isn't that a human organism can turn into one of its organs on the standard assumption that numerical identity is not temporally relative, nothing could become identical to what was once its own proper part. The proposal is rather that the human organism could be reduced down to coincidence with, or more cautiously, the size and shape of its cerebrum. Well, that just invites a reformulation. How can the present proposal avoid the still absurd consequence that a human organism could be reduced down to coincidence with this kidney. But I think the crucial disanalogy is this: a kidney in a vat, even if carefully stimulated to intrinsic activity, <clears throat> matching its intrinsic activity when contained within a larger organism, is not thereby sufficient for the presence of something engaged in activity characteristic of a whole human organism. It's merely idly performing a sub-activity with the potential to contribute to a whole animal's activity of excretion should it be coupled to an animal's bloodstream in the right kind of way. In contrast, a cerebrum in a vat stimulated to intrinsic activity matching its intrinsic activity when contained within a larger organism is sufficient for the presence of something engaged in various activities characteristic of a whole organism, right? There'd be thinking, planning, visualizing, and the blocked capacities for, for much more. Well then suppose you insist perhaps by means of some suitably permissive understanding of excreting, right, that, that term excreting, that the kidney in a vat is capable of doing something that a whole organism can do. Well still the disanalogy between the cases is dramatic. The relatively simple kidney doesn't preserve anything like the diverse range of capacities human organism activity preserved by the cosmically complex structure of the cerebrum. So there's just no parallel level of support for a kidney analogue of sufficiency. A related objection which I've seen and heard is that too much of the size, shape and appearance of an animal would be lost in the remnant case for it to be plausible to say that an animal has persisted. But I think the right response here is that a human organism 
is a highly focally realized continuant, so that loss of stereotypical size, shape and appearance is just no overriding obstacle to its persistence. Being perfectly consistent with the preservation of a sufficiency of capacities for kind characteristic activity. It seems to me here the tacit but probably widespread presupposition that animalism must be a, a body theory of personal identity is likely to have made this option difficult to discern. If it's imagined that a human organism is a kind of material concretion of the same general category as a, a boulder, you know, something like a homogenous humanoid statue of meat, right? <clears throat> then, you know, just as a classical Greek statue couldn't be reduced to the size of a little oblong of marble contained within its head, neither will be imagined could a human organism be reduced to the size of its cerebrum. But that imagery fails to acknowledge that the realization of kind characteristic capacities in a human organism is just not distributed like that of a homogenous material concretion. Human organisms are not meat statues. Okay, so this I think invites you know bringing up the, the body theory of personal identity terminology invites a further point of clarification. Um, I think if thesis A is developed in the kind of way I'm suggesting, then indeed animalism contrasts with a sort of brute body theory of personal identity. On the other hand, if A thesis A has the consequence that we go with the cerebrum in a vat, doesn't animalism now collapse instead into a standard Lockean psychological continuity theory of personal identity? Well, so says Derek Parfit in a very recent discussion of the claim that a human organism could persist in a remnant cerebrum condition. I'll just read what he says. He says, if animalists made this claim, their view would cease to be an alternative to, a Lockean, to Lockean views. On the Lockean brain-based psychological criterion, some future person would be me if this person would be uniquely psychologically continuous with me because he would have enough of my brain. This criterion implies that in surviving cerebrum, right in the kind of remnant kind of case, the conscious being would be the same person as me. When animalists entered this debate, their main claim was that such psychological criteria of identity are seriously mistaken. Because we're human animals, so our criteria of identity must be biological. If these animalists now claimed in surviving cerebrum, the conscious rational being would be a living animal who would be me, these people would be claiming that the true criterion of identity for developed human animals is of the Lockean psychological kind. Now, I think it's certainly true that Eric Olson's well-known entry to this debate took, as he puts it, the radically non-psychological view that psychologically is com psychology is completely irrelevant to our persistence. But if, I mean, if anything deserves to be called the main claim of animalism, it's simply the claim that we're fundamentally biological organisms of a certain kind. <clears throat> I mean, and the principal development of that claim can do justice to the fact that more or less impressive sensory motor capacities are among the biological capacities, characteristic organisms of our kind and every animal kind, and thus not irrelevant to our persistence. So, is Parfit right to say that animalism developed in this way is claiming that the criterion of identity for human animals is the Lockean criterion? Well, He's not right. A Lockean theory of personal identity, as I understand it, claims that psychological continuity of some kind is necessary and sufficient for us to persist. The present development of thesis A holds that the continuous preservation of psychological capacities can be sufficient for us to persist because these capacities are among <coughs> those characteristic of the organism kind to which we belong, and in general the preservation of a sufficient number of such capacities are sufficient for the preservation of a thing of a certain kind. But that the application of the general conception of persistence of continuance doesn't support the Lockean claim that the brain-based cycle of continuity is necessary for us to persist. The proposal is perfectly consistent with the claim that the cerebrum of a human organism could be rubbed away entirely, leaving the organism in the condition of a non-cognitive human vegetable. Such a case would involve the loss of a massive number of capacities characteristic of human organisms, but in virtue of the preservation of the lower part of the central nervous system, 
a still diverse range of capacities characteristic of human organisms would be preserved along a unique path. The remaining part of the nervous system is less complex, but it nevertheless continues to realize along a path characteristic capacities for breathing, excreting, drooling, sweating, and so on. These, it seems perfectly natural to say, are a sufficient number of capacities for the persistence of a human organism. Right, a human vegetable is still a human organism. But there's no psychological continuity of the sort Lockeans claim to be necessary for our persistence. Right, so I think sometimes it's okay to rethink these well-worn depictions of opposing camps in philosophical debates, you know, animalism and Lockeanism. I think here, even when animalism is developed in the way I'm suggesting, um, <coughs> that distinction holds up. This isn't just another neo-Lockean view of personal identity. Okay, so a big question is why Olson, under the influence of Van Inwagen, thinks that psychology is completely irrelevant to human organism persistence. I'm not. We can talk about that in discussion if you like. Okay. The other final big question for the proposal as I am <coughs> developing, developing it relates to the separation and attachment case, right? B2. So, I mean, if it's a consequence of the proposal, as I'm suggesting, that a human organism can persist in the remnant cerebrum case, but also a consequence of the proposal that a human organism can persist as a non-cognitive human vegetable, then doesn't the proposal just shake itself to pieces when it comes to describing the separation and attachment case in which a cerebrum is transferred between two vegetative human organisms? Okay, so... So this is B, B2, right? We would go with the cerebrum in a separation and attachment case. The <clears throat> Just to remind you what the case is, we've got a healthy whole human organism not whittled down, leaving a cerebrum in a vat, but instead its cerebrum is carefully separated away, leaving what appears to be a living human organism in a vegetative state, nearby another living hu human organism in a vegetative state, missing a cerebrum, the cerebrum separated from the original organism, it's carefully grafted into the skull of this ready organism, and soon enough the specific diverse psychological capacities of the original human person will be expressed where the cerebrum was grafted into the waiting organism. That's the, the brown browsing kind of case. So it's just much harder to see how thesis A, the we're fundamentally human organisms could be consistent with the intuitive verdict B2 that one of us would go with the cerebrum. So take the, as it were, two phases of the thought experiment in turn. So first the separation phase. So if we're human organisms and we go with the cerebrum, then what about the human organism left behind in a vegetative state? Where did it come from? It can't be supposed that it existed before the separation event, because then you'd have to suppose there were two human organisms at one's location before the separation event, and that, <clears throat> that seems absurd. On the other hand, if the organism didn't exist before the operation, then it must have been created by the removal of the cerebrum, but it sounds bizarre to say that removing an organ from a human organism could bring a new human organism into existence. And parallel worries afflict the attachment phase of the case, right? So if we're human organisms and but we go with the cerebrum, then what happens to the recipient vegetative human organism? Is it still present at the end of the process? If so, then there must be two human organisms at the end of the process. Kind of in kind of in the same place at the same time, but that sounds very strange again. There seem to be only a single human organism present with a new organ. On the other hand, if we say the recipient organism is gone by the end of the process, then we're now committed to the apparently bizarre conclusion that implanting a new organ can destroy a human organism. That also sounds like a weird thing to say. Okay, so in order to see the right way through these questions, we can begin by noting that the imagery of organ removal is misleading according to the picture developed in this paper so far. 
We've seen that the smaller object resulting from the separation event, right? The little little thing preserves sufficient human organism characteristic capacities to count as a locus of activity of that kind. It is a human organism. So the separation event is more accurately viewed as a fission event, right? It's an event in which human-animal characteristic activity divides into two parts, right? The separation phase of the case. So there are two human organisms at the end of this fission event, one preserving the diverse and distinctive psychological capacities preserved by the cosmically complex cerebrum, the other preserving the autonomic capacities and others realized by the simpler remaining fragments of the nervous system. Moreover, given this asymmetry in the density of capacities preserved, it is plausible, I think, to regard this as a case of asymmetric fission. <clears throat> in other words, the original human organism goes with the cerebrum. The human organism in the vegetative state left behind is the inferior, as it were, branch line of the fission. It is a new offshoot organism. Okay, well that, you know, that might seem surprising, right? Think about it. So biological processes in the bulk of the tissue of the initially undivided human organism may carry on perfectly undisturbed in the human vegetable left behind by the cerebrum. So how could this vegetative organism possibly be a newly created organism? But actually the situation is metaphysically not at all different from actual cases of plant cutting, right, taking plant cuttings. So this is a horticultural technique of propagating and reproducing plants by asexual means. <clears throat> so part of a parent organism is cut off, placed, I've got one of these on actually my kitchen, mantelpiece, spider plant, and placed into like a, a jar of water. So suitably tended and nourished, the entity in the jar can come to manifest whole plant characteristic activity. It can sprout roots of its own and flower. And the rest of it, so we've created a new living organism, which is a genetic clone of the, the mother plant. But biological processes that were going on in the tissue of the parent organism may well have carried on undisturbed in the tissue of the daughter plant. There's nothing puzzling about that. So plant cutting is precisely a case of asymmetric fission of organisms. Dominance in asymmetric fission of organisms may march in step with preponderance of biomass, but it need not. Right? Suppose you take a cutting from a banana plant with a giant leaf, much larger in mass than its remaining <coughs> root and stem structure. You nourish the detached leaf and, you know, in the same way, whole plant activity begins to manifest. It remains plausible that this larger thing is the new daughter plant, the parent plant, <coughs> is the thing with the remaining root and stem structure. Why? Well, at the fission event, the higher density of capacities for kind characteristic activity is preserved in the root and stem structure than in the relatively simple leaf, despite its mass. In a focally realized organism, preponderance of biomass is just an unreliable guide for identification of the dominant locus of kind characteristic activity. And the same is true of human organisms. By separating the rest of the organism away from the cerebrum, <clears throat> you in effect take a large living cutting from the parent organism, a parent organism that's now much less massive, but nevertheless dominant in virtue of realizing the higher density of kind characteristic activities. It may be distracting that it's the cutting that better preserves the gross form and appearance of the parent organism, but as I've already pointed out, these superficial continuities have no particular significance for the persistence of focally realized macroscopic continuance. I mean, you might still be puzzled, you know, I've said that an individual human organism could persist with its cerebrum rubbed away, but such a vegetable could be an exact duplicate of the human vegetable left behind after the separation of the cerebrum. So how can you hold it's the human organism is, the, is a vegetable in the first case, but <clears throat> not in the second. How can that be coherent? Well, I mean, it's no more or less puzzling than perfectly familiar pairs of cases, right? Like a, a bar of soap 
can be sort of gradually rubbed down to, you know, let's say a fifth of its <coughs> uh, original size. But if instead you just snip off a fifth directly, then the bar of search shrinks down to four fifths of its size, <coughs> despite the fact that the smaller cutting uh, might intrinsically match the reduced entity in the first case by their duplicates with quite different origins. Right, the first is a large bar of soap shrunk down, the second is a new chunk of soap, little chunk of soap, created by taking a cutting from, as it were, a parent, a mother bar of soap. I mean, in the case of simple material concretions like bars of soap, dominance in fish, I think, is straightforwardly measured by preponderance of mass. But that difference with human organism fission is, seems to be metaphysically entirely superficial. But I think it's likely to have made the right theoretical viewpoint here difficult for people to, to spot. So from the point of view of preservation of human organism capacities, a large vegetative human organism is a smaller fragment, if you like, <coughs> than the cerebrum. But a human organism can be rubbed down to a human vegetable, if you like, or such a fragment can be a cutting taken from a, a mother human organism. But it might be helpful exercise to, I mean, imagine a, an anatomical projection of the human organism on which you know, the spatial volume of parts is made proportional to the human organism capacities realized in that part, and then you could use that projection to judge dominance and fission by crude sort of size. And I guess the, the idea is that, <laughs> you know, it's something like that, really. So you can rub the human organism down to this little fragment, or you can snip off such a fragment and make a new human organism. Okay, the, the attachment phase of the sort of Brown-Brownson separation attachment case is, is also modeled by actual horticultural techniques like plant grafting. So you can graft an inferior plant onto a superior plant. Eventually the parts of the inferior plant get absorbed into the, the people, gardeners do this. Eventually the parts of the inferior plant are absorbed into the activity of the superior plant and the inferior plant is no more. We've now just got a, a twig on the, <coughs> the recipient plant. So that's a case of asymmetric fusion of organisms. But again, there's no reason to assume that dominance in fusion should march in step with preponderance of biomass. A large but simple plant could be grafted onto a small but more densely realized plant. Say by the end of the process, the activity prevalently expressed is the activity of the smaller plant. So again, this imagery of implanting an organ into a human organism is misleading. The attachment phase of the Brown-Brownson case is a fusion of two loci of human organism characteristic <coughs> organism and activity. It's the grafting of a large human organism onto a small human organism. And again, it's an asymmetric fusion in which, again, capacity dominance inverts preponderance of mass. In virtue of the great diversity of specific capacities realized by the cosmically complex cerebrum as compared to those realized by the simpler lower nervous system, it's possible that the more massive human organism will be absorbed into the dominant locus activity of the less massive organism. So far from creating trouble for animalism, the thesis that we're fundamentally organisms of a certain sort, the intuitive Brown Brownson verdict, which is standardly wielded as, you know, the, the killer blow against animalism, is <coughs> in fact strongly supported by animalism as far as I can, as far as I can tell. It's theoretically possible that a human organism would indeed go with the cerebrum in the separation and attachment case. So first, right, a large living cutting is snipped off a human organism and then a large cutting is <coughs> grafted onto that 
smaller but superior human organism. So we've already seen how the animalist thesis a strongly supports the kind of remnant brain in a bat intuitive verdict. It also I think strongly supports the intuitive Brown Brownson verdict. So as far as I can tell, a lot of the work in the personal identity debate, trying to develop alternative theories of our nature to respect his intuitions or trying to explain away his intuitions. It's all a, a waste of time and a coherent, settled view of our nature and persistence can incorporate both both theses. So that's it.